Judicial Center. I'm Beth Wiggins, Director of the Center's Research Division, and this is Term Talk. In each 8-12 to 12 minute episode, we discuss what's helpful for the lower courts to know about the term's most impactful Supreme Court decisions. Joining me are our longtime collaborators, Evan Lee, Professor Emeritus at UC Hastings School of Law, and Lori Levinson, Professor of Law and David W. Bertram Chair in Ethical Advocacy at Loyola Law School. Thank you both for joining us today. Two criminal cases this term relate to the discretion of the lower courts in trying cases. We talked about Hempel versus New York, a case about the right to confront witnesses in another episode. Let's talk about U.S. versus Zarnayev, the Boston Marathon bombing case. This was a six to three opinion that gave deference to determinations made by trial courts in two areas, Vardir and jury selection, and the evidence that can be used in mitigation under the Federal Death Penalty Act. The justices were in agreement on the jury selection issues. However, Justices Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan dissented regarding the exclusion of evidence the defense wanted to use as mitigation in the penalty phase. Laurie, can you tell us more about the facts? Yes, Beth. I'm sure everyone actually remembers this case. It's the Boston Marathon bombing case that happened in 2013, where you had two brothers who were responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing. Now, it was only the younger brother, Johar Tsarnaev, who ended up going on trial because his other older brother, Kamerlan, had been accidentally killed when they were trying to get away. Johar was convicted of killing three and wounding hundreds for his part in placing the two bombs at the finish line of the marathon. And in this case, Zohar did not contest his guilt. What he did is contest what the penalty should be, because this was a capital case. So when this offense goes to trial, the judge has to deal with jury selection in a very high publicity case. The defense wanted him to question every prospective juror about not only the media in general, but to particular sources they've read and what their reaction was to it. And the defense argued that the court had a responsibility to do that under the appellate supervisory power that had made that a rule. At sentencing, the younger brother argued that his older brother was the one who was violent and influenced him and participated in the bombing, and that in fact, Johard only did it out of fear. And he proffered a statement that linked the older brother to an earlier triple homicide in support of his argument that that should help mitigate the younger brother's sentence. As it turned out, the lower court would not allow that evidence. And so that was one of the key issues in the case, as well as, well as the jury selection issues. So, Evan, the Court of Appeals determined that the trial judge's decision was an abuse of discretion on both of those questions and vacated the capital sentence. But the Supreme Court disagreed. Um, let's talk first about the court's reasoning as to the jury selection. Yeah, um, well, United States Courts of Appeals have long exercised at least some supervisory powers over the district courts in their circuits. And the rule that such questions as uh, Zarnayev asked for uh, in this case, the rule that those kinds of questions must be asked of prospective jurors came from the exercise of that supervisory power in this particular circuit. 
the Supreme Court first determined that such a rule was an overreach of its supervisory power, that if the circuits do have supervisory powers and the court did not decide that question, but assuming for the sake of argument that appellate courts do have supervisory powers over district courts in their circuit, this does not fall within that supervisory power. Second, the court said that the proper standard of review here was abuse of discretion, not de novo review. And applying that standard to the facts of this case, the court said there was no abuse of discretion in excluding that requested question. Third, the court said, look, specific questions about the awareness of media coverage were asked at voir dire. And the district court did probe the potential bias of witnesses during voir dire. And therefore, the fairness of the trial wasn't threatened by the exclusion of that particular question requested by Tsarnaev. So, Lori, what about the second issue? What did the court determine about the sentencing phase question? Well, the Supreme Court said that this was not a violation of the defendant's constitutional rights or rights under the Federal Death Penalty Act, that in fact, trial judges have broad discretion when it comes to evidentiary matters, that the determination by this trial judge that this would be very confusing and misleading for the jury, because in fact, the brother was dead who was alleged to have been involved in the triple homicide as well as others, so there'd need to be a mini-trial as to what happened here, the Supreme Court ended up saying, notwithstanding the Federal Death Penalty Act that allows in mitigating evidence, it doesn't make it a free-for-all, and that there is still that discretion, importantly, by the trial judge to decide whether the alleged mitigating evidence should be allowed. So, Evan, as I mentioned before, Justice Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kager joined in dissent. What did they say? Uh, this was a pretty emphatic dissent, um, which kind of disagrees with the majority, you know, right on down the line. Uh, first, they said both precedent and the Federal Death Penalty Act allow defendants to present any probative evidence that tends to mitigate uh, in the capital uh, in the capital context in the penalty phase of uh, a uh, of a capital case. Second, the dissenters said. They believe the evidence of this triple homicide that Laurie referred to earlier, that that evidence was both probative and reliable. In fact, the evidence had been used to obtain a warrant earlier. Um, they also said the trial court could control for any confusion that the presentation of this evidence might cause with the jury. And also the, court, the, the dissenters said, you know, the potential that this, um, that this evidence might somehow lengthen the proceeding, that in and of itself is not a basis for excluding the evidence. The dissenters further pointed out that similar evidence in the form of a defendant's past bad acts are routinely admitted, despite many of the same concerns cited by the majority. And finally, the dissenters endorse the existence of supervisory powers in circuits over district courts. 
Thanks, Evan. So, Lori, what do you think are the key takeaways for the lower courts here? The key takeaway is clearly that the lower courts have broad discretion, both in jury selection and for deer, even in the most high-profile cases. It can be up to that judge how to figure out what type of pretrial publicity there was and whether it would affect the prospective juror. And the second thing is under the Federal Death Penalty Act, not all possible mitigating evidence comes in. Again, the lower court has broad discretion. And then as Evan hinted to, there's the open question of where the court might be headed on the question of how much supervisory power circuit courts will have on any of these issues. So Evan? Yeah, just that last point by Lori, I, I would I would emphasize that the majority here merely assumed for the sake of argument that circuits have supervisory powers over district courts, but one has to wonder whether some of the members of the court uh, ultimately want to revisit that question in an appropriate case. And I think it's notable that in her solo concurrence, Justice Barrett, who wrote about this topic as a law professor, argued that the Supreme Court of the United States may have supervisory powers over the circuits because there's language in Article Three of the Constitution that calls the lower federal courts, quote unquote, inferior to the Supreme Court. But there's no analogous language in Article Three or anywhere else that might act as a, an analogous hook for supervisory powers on the part of intermediate federal appellate courts over district courts. Well, thank you, Evan, and thank you, um, Lori, for being here today, and I hope to see you both again soon. This podcast was paid for at U.S. taxpayer expense.